Let's read his word. And I'd like to begin in chapter 28, verse 1, and reread the resurrection account. Is that okay? Um, we don't have to just read it once a year at Easter. So I'm going to begin. And plus, it is the context for uh, the Great Commission, as we call it, is the resurrection of Christ. So let's go back to chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray as we ask God's blessing. We pause one more time, our Father in heaven, to add again our request we just sang a few moments ago, that your own spirit, the spirit of Christ, would be pleased to now cause your word to be understood by your people, and not merely with our heads, but that you would work in our hearts. And we pray this for our King's glory and honor, Jesus. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew comes to a conclusion at like 100 miles per hour. (laughs) 
It's abrupt. We've been following the narrative of, of the birth of Christ, his, and then mostly his life and his ministry, his teaching, and then for a while now we've been, the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Matthew has been showing us his last words to his disciples, then his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, his resurrection. It's going and all of a sudden, boom, we're here. It is rather abrupt, but that is intentional. It is meant to make an impact, kind of like when you're in the back seat of the car, maybe, and somebody else is driving in the front seat, and they hit the brakes a little more strongly than you were anticipating, and all of a sudden, boom, and you feel the impact. It, it, it wakes you up if you were sleeping. This text is, is a wake-up call to the church in every generation. It is at the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, but it really is the beginning. It really is the beginning of the marching orders for the church. In Jesus' words here in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, there is a fulfillment of the promises of God given in the Old Testament, but now there is also a, a blueprint for how the disciples, who will become apostles, are to conduct themselves, what they are to do. There's so much here, and it's a very familiar passage. Many of us know this passage as the Great Commission. Many of us, maybe if you grew up in church, you heard missions conferences where this was the theme passage, go into all the world and make disciples. And rightly so, it's been used in that way. We frequently refer to this passage whenever we have a baptism Because here we have the overt command of Jesus that if you are a believer, if you are a disciple, you are to be baptized. There's so much here in these verses for us. So I felt this morning as I thought, how how am I to preach these familiar words which are so full and loaded with significance? I thought what we would do is identify the, the key the key actions, the key truths, the dominant truths in this text, and then use them as a tool of reflection for ourselves. Again, I want to, before we go into those six truths I want to present to you this morning from this passage, I want you to consider that the disciples, the 11, are the key here in verse 16. Jesus had appeared to them briefly in Jerusalem, but he was trying to get them to do what he told them to do, which was meet them, him up in Galilee. And it would take them days, if not close to a week, to walk up to the region of Galilee. And we saw last Sunday that, that part of the reason, doubtless, that Jesus would meet his disciples in Galilee is because actually that was prophetic. And it was even mentioned at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew that It's in that region that the people who walked in darkness would see a great light, that Isaiah 9 passage. And the ministry or the the revelation of the risen Lord, the Messiah, begins not in Jerusalem where he was rejected and crucified, but in the backwoods part of Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali, which were often overrun by Gentiles so much that Galilee in the north where Jesus was from It was called Galilee of the Gentiles. It's it's a strategic place to meet his disciples 
Because as we'll see in just a moment, the bent of the Bible from the beginning is not merely that God would save some from among the nation of Israel, but from the very beginning, his plan was for the nations. And after this command, the disciples who would become apostles, they do exactly what Jesus commanded them. They struggled with it a little bit. But if you go to the book of Acts, don't need to right now, but consider this, that Matthew chapter 28 and Jesus' command here to his disciples, what you do then is you go and you read the book of Acts and you think, is this what these men are doing? And it's exactly what you find them doing. You find them recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ that you recognize, you, you find them in the book of Acts going and, and sometimes at, unwillingly. <laughs> it takes some persecution in Jerusalem to scatter them. And they go to the regions of the known world at that time. And this book of Acts is the record of them making disciples, not only of Jews, but of all nations. So what I'm trying to do here at the beginning is to try to help you understand the significance of these verses. They are pivotal. This is a pivot moment in God's redemptive history. Here is a fulfillment of, in part, not all of the Old Testament is yet fulfilled, but here is a significant fulfillment of God's promises that he would raise up a descendant of David who would come and be the king, the Messiah, that he would, according to Isaiah 53, be pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities, that he would rise from the dead even. And not only here is a fulfillment of what has gone before, but here is an understanding, a way to understand the rest of the New Testament. If you want to work out the, not only the book of Acts, but each of the letters to the churches, what's going on there? The Apostle Paul or one of the other apostles is writing a letter to a particular local church because in that local church, maybe they're not recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ. And there is not this attitude of, well, you know, that's how that local church works it out. No, because they had been commanded to go to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. So the New Testament letters are encouraging and they're teaching us how it, what it means to become a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And then you go all the way to the end of Revelation, and what do you find? You find God has established his kingdom on earth, comprised, yes, of Israel and his faithfulness to Israel, but not Israel alone, to all the nations, to men and women from every tribe. So again, I'm, I'm laboring here at the beginning to help us this morning understand how truly significant these verses are. It's for good reason that in some churches you've seen these verses maybe up on the wall in the front of the church. Of all the verses in the Bible that you could do that with, that's a good, these verses are a good, uh, a good prospect. Because these verses lay before us our mission as a church. This is what we must be about. And if we are not about what is contained in these words from the mouth of our Lord, then we are off the course and we are in needing of correction. So with that, by way of introduction this morning, understanding that these verses both fulfill what has gone before and command what is to, 
what we are to do as our mission. Let's look now at the significant themes and truths that the Holy Spirit puts to us in these closing verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 16, Jesus is in Galilee, that's up in the north, again to the to the proud, legalistic, religiously arrogant leaders in Jerusalem. Galilee up in the north was kind of the backwater. It was the region that was mixed with the Gentiles. It was overrun by foreign powers again and again. And Jesus decisively told his disciples to meet him after his resurrection in Galilee. He had told them that before even his arrest and his death and resurrection. And so finally, after some prodding, actually quite a bit of prodding, Jesus had to appear to a few men on the road to Emmaus and convince them that, in fact, that the death and crucifixion was actually in the Old Testament. Jesus actually had to walk through a door and appear to his disciples because they, even though the women came back, even though Peter told them that it seemed that Christ was risen, the rest of the disciples were huddled up in a room and they weren't going anywhere. So finally, Jesus, in great patience, appears to them, even to Thomas, and has Thomas put his hand in his side. It it takes a little bit of prodding, but finally they get the message. And notice that Jesus doesn't, while while he prompts them, he doesn't say, okay, well, you guys want to meet in Jerusalem, I'll meet you in Jerusalem. No, he's the king. He told them to meet him in Galilee, so he'll get them going, but he'll meet them in Galilee. And it's going to be a haul. I mean, it's like all of us this morning deciding, well, next, church, next Sunday we're going, to have, uh, we're going to have church in Washington, D.C., um, but we're not going to drive. We're just all going to walk. Maybe Boston is better. Um, and even Boston might take a week uh, for some of us to walk to get there. So it's going to be a haul to get up to Galilee. So they wander, they wander, they walk up there together. And there, Jesus had designated a certain mountain. We don't know which mountain that was, but it was known to his disciples. Another reason for perhaps Jesus having his disciples meet him here is because this is the area where he primarily conducted his teaching ministry. So years now, he's been teaching them, and he's going to meet them in the same place, but now risen from the dead. And perhaps with that, with his appearance and in the same place where he conducted most of his teaching ministry, it will click and it will bring to their mind things that he taught previously. Whatever the reasons, the disciples proceed to Galilee and Jesus meets them there. And they see him, verse 17. And here's the first truth this morning if you're taking an outline. Worship. Worship. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. This is absolutely fitting, of course. But in the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, it is not coincidental. In other words, it's not just a, a detail that Matthew's just putting down. Oh, yeah, they worshipped him. Remember, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, it begins after the genealogy that Jesus is actually in the line of David, after the announcement to Joseph and Mary, when Jesus is born, we learn of these magi, these three wise men, we know them. And they come, and Herod 
wicked King Herod says, oh, when you find out where he is, let me know so that I too may worship him. Of course, we know Herod wanted to kill him. But when the three magi, they find the place where Jesus, the baby, was lying in a manger with Joseph. Actually, it was probably later by that, and he probably wasn't in a manger. Sorry. But, but he was there with Joseph and Mary. We learned that they brought gifts, and they fell down and worshipped him. Interesting that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the Messiah being worshipped by three foreign Gentiles. Not coincidental. And now you go all the way to the end, and the whole presentation of the Gospel of Matthew has been, this is your King, this is your Messiah, this is God's Son, worship him. And, and those of you who have been here on Sunday mornings, you've known that for the past like three months, what's been my pastoral application most often? Let's worship Jesus. <laughs> it's just again and again and again. And, and what's the practical aspect of that? To worship Jesus is the most practical need that you and I have in our lives. It is the reality that we must grapple with that Jesus is God's son. That he is our king. That he is our savior. And not only is he this in in objective reality, but in his relation to us. He came and he lived for us. And he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the dead victoriously. The only appropriate response is worship, adoration, And here, their worship likely would have consisted of literally their prostrating themselves before Jesus on the ground. They humbled themselves. They gave their entire body, their heart, their spirit to adoring the risen king. They worshipped him. Some doubted him, yes, and And there's a question there that confuses us. You mean some of the disciples were doubtful? Well, we know Thomas was initially. But the likelihood is in verse 17, that doubt was obliterated when in verse 18, Jesus came up. In other words, it may be that they were doubtful as they were at a distance. But as Jesus came forward and they're standing in his presence, doubt fled and they worshiped him. And so our question this morning, as we proceed, is, am I worshiping Jesus? We're asking each one of us. Am I worshiping Jesus? And this is not merely what happens on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. In the general flow of my life, is my king foremost in my heart? Does he have my adoration, my admiration? Do I esteem him most highly? Do I do what I do for Jesus' sake? And if the answer is honestly this morning no, then it's not merely necessarily a matter of will. It may be that you have forgotten just who he is and you need to go back and get a load of this. He is the eternal son of God incarnate who came and lived a righteous, perfect life and was not breathing Friday night, all day Saturday, through the evening into Sunday. And on Sunday morning at dawn, 
air came into his lungs and he stood up and he's risen from the dead and he's ascended into the presence of God. He is breathing right now the lungs of Jesus Christ, your Savior and King, and breathing. And maybe it is that you forgot that. He's alive. He is risen. You sang it this morning. He is risen from the dead. We forget this. But because we forget it doesn't mean that it's not true. We can forget things that are true. How how often have we known the experience of there's a beautiful place or a vista or a mountain or a or maybe it's the ocean or or just a scene that that you've been to before and and you remember it as beautiful, but then you go back there and you say, "Wow, I, I forgot how amazing this is." Your recollection, though it was accurate was also inaccurate because your remembrance, your recollection, you, you couldn't remember exactly how powerful it was. Let us remember Jesus Christ this morning, risen from the dead, and worship him. Am I worshiping Jesus? The question for us as a church, are we worshiping Jesus? Does he have our utmost adoration? Is he the highest value? Do we do what we do around here for Jesus' sake. Sometimes I pray, and I'll close with that phrase, for Jesus' sake. I, I wonder sometimes if people would misunderstand me like Jesus somehow needs help. <laughs> he doesn't need help. He's, he's okay. Um, he's got all power. He's got all authority. But when I say for Jesus' sake, and that's a, a historical reformed way of praying, we mean that for the honor of Jesus, for his glory, for his pleasure. Do I do what I do For Jesus' sake, whatever it is around the home, in relation to my spouse, in relation to my work, no matter how far it may seem removed from the purposes of the kingdom, I do what I do because I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we worshiping Jesus? Am I individually and are we together? And by God's grace, I believe you are. But this is really my one pastoral aim, is that you know Jesus and that you love him with all your heart in ever-increasing measure. That's really the purpose of pastoral ministry. And you are growing, and we are growing, and we dare not stop. Worship. They worshiped him. Secondly, this morning, Jesus, when he saw them, after they worshiped him, he spoke to them, verse 18, and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Wow. That's a lot of authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Notice the order there. In heaven and on earth. He's claiming this Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead, is claiming to have the very authority of the throne room of God. And there is a particular specific Old Testament reference here. This is not just out of anywhere. This is not Jesus just saying something to kind of wrap up the gospel. Turn with me for a moment to, if you want to, you don't have to, you can listen if you want. Daniel chapter 7. This is such a pivotal passage in your Bible. There, Daniel, the servant of God, is given a vision of various beasts, and they represent various kingdoms of the world that come and go various world powers. 
he keeps looking in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and he sees the very throne of God and the Ancient of Days, a reference to God the Father. And he's surrounded in, by angels, myriads and myriads of angels. It's clear that this is the very throne room of heaven. But then Daniel, in Daniel 7, verse 13, says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. That's a messianic title about the king of Israel. That's Jesus. One like a son of man was coming up, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So here we are in the throne room of heaven. Here is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Most High on his throne. And up comes this mysterious figure, like a son of man. He, he looks like a man, and yet he's so glorious that he, he is more than a man, it would seem. And others around the throne, the angels are bowing and worshiping, but this mysterious figure walks, however reverently, right up to the very throne of the Ancient of Days. And given to him by the Ancient of Days, verse 14, is a dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And note this next phrase, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion, the dominion of this Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, we tend to have a hard distinction in our thinking, even as evangelical Christians, between our New Testament Bibles and our Old Testament Bibles. But that is manufactured by us, not by God or his spirit. Because here we see what Jesus is referencing in Matthew 28. He is making an absolute clear as day allusion to Daniel chapter 7 and telling his disciples, I am risen from the dead now and I intend to now reign. It is upon his resurrection that he has conquered death, that he is by his death and by his resurrection as the incarnate Son of God, in his role as the Messiah, it is through his death and his resurrection that God has now exalted him, Paul says in Philippians, and given him the name that is above every other name. In other words, he is now most high with the Father. He is, he is the authoritative King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we need to reckon with this. We need to confess that Jesus is the king. He is the son of man. But we also need to come to terms with he's the boss, if I can put it in modern terms. <laughs> There's a lot of us, we're kind of good with this language about Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. But here we are. We are Americans. We are, many of us, New Englanders. We are do-it-yourselfers. We figure it out our way, and it's our way and here Jesus is saying, I've got news for you guys. I love you, but it's my way. I'm king, not you. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. And this is foreign to us. Even here in the United States, we're not so good with kings. We, we tend to cast them off. 
but we dare not try to cast off this king. Rather, we want to embrace and acknowledge that he is our king, that he has all authority, that he is our good king, that he's never going to command us to do something that's wrong or base or evil. He is altogether good and kind, and his ways and his laws are life. But he is our king. He doesn't count to three. He doesn't take votes. You don't have a conversation with Jesus and say, well, that, that, I, I know what you're saying, Lord, but it seems to me. <laughs> and yet so many of us transfer that worldly kind of thinking over into our relationship with Jesus. Here's the arrangement for the disciples of Jesus. Jesus says, Jesus teaches, I, slave, servant, do. Just that's the arrangement. And it's a good arrangement. Because I actually wasn't made to be my own God. I actually wasn't made to be my own king. And if I try to be, I I make quite a mess of it. What a privilege to have such a good king. But he has all authority. And so our questions, am I recognizing his absolute authority? His absolute. Notice the extent, heaven and on earth. In other words, Jesus does not recognize anywhere that he does not have authority. His authority is not just in the church or in this part of your life or mine, but it extends throughout the entirety of the universe. Heaven and earth is pretty comprehensive. Am I recognizing his absolute authority in my life? Have I reckoned with this reality? And for we as a church, as a church, do we acknowledge this authority? Is Jesus Christ really Lord here? I don't really want to do it. uh, But how shocking would it be in this culture, especially evangelical church culture? And maybe I've referenced this before. But I thought, you know, in, in most evangelical American churches, it might be good to have a big sign as you come into the foyer that says, Jesus Christ is king here, not you. Because we are so used in our consumer culture of everywhere we go, the consumer is what? The consumer is king. Jesus Christ is king here, not you. You're welcome here. Jesus loves people. <laughs> he, he wants people to come to him. We, we want people to come. We want to, I hope that if you're visiting, you've, you've had a friendly, warm welcoming, and I hope that you understand that's, that's the grace and the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But people go to churches What's this church got for me? What are you going to do for me? Um, I don't like this. I like Ooh, just be careful. Because it's his church and his authority. So, authority. What are we doing with his authority? What a blessing it is when we together not only submit to his authority, but love it and embrace it. Thirdly, this morning, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Verse 19, Go, therefore, Make disciples of all nation, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our third truth, if we can summarize it, is making disciples of all the nations. Making disciples of all the nations. This is what Jesus is commanding his disciples. 
And we do need to recognize, and this is often missed, we do need to recognize that historically there is initially a particular emphasis to these 11 apostles. Yes, there are implications for all of us. But we often skip over the fact that it's these 11 in the immediate context that are highlighted, and it is these 11 who will be added to, and Paul will become an apostle as well, who then in the rest of the New Testament we find in the book of Acts going, preaching the gospel, and making disciples. So that initial mission was given to these apostles, and by extension certainly is to every believer in church. There's three verbs here, going, making, and baptizing. The assumption there is Jesus makes for his disciples is that they are not to stay where they are, but they are to go. And in the book of Acts, again, we learn that they started in Jerusalem, which was of the plan of God. But when maybe they were a little slow to remember Jesus's words about going and were caught up with their comfort and, and loving. I mean, these were all Jews originally. They loved Jerusalem. But it's through persecution that eventually they were scattered and the word started to go out. And then God raised up the apostle Paul, who with Peter were apostles to the Gentiles. They had this amazing missionary um, ministry. So going... There is to always be a going aspect to the church. Making disciples. Notice it's more than just making converts. Of course, that includes making converts. I mean, we know from the Bible that we can't make anybody be a Christian. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. You only become a Christian by believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And it's the Spirit of God that works in your heart. You can't be compelled by any external force. You can't brow people into, you know, being a Christian. You shouldn't try to sell them into being a Christian. We go and we tell people about Jesus. We tell them the good news that you can be forgiven of your sins and receive everlasting life. It's the Spirit, though, who converts the heart. But in our preaching of the gospel, our aim is not merely that we have a certain number of people make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Our objective is to make disciples. This is the mission of the church, is to make disciples. So that in everything we do, we're thinking about the worship of God, the worship of Christ. We're thinking about reflecting the authority of Christ in his church And everything we do is in light of how is this contributing to the mission of making disciples. So often the church today unintentionally uses people for the production of the church and for the program continuing to go on and doesn't necessarily stop to think, are we just using this person because of their talent? Or are we actually interested in their discipleship, becoming more like Jesus? And so the value that the church is to embrace is is seeing that the gospel goes out, 
that the goal is actually disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is a, is a student. It's someone who is learning to become like Jesus. Learning his ways. Going, dis- making disciples, and baptizing. Baptizing is, is uh, the initial way of publicly professing that you are a follower of Jesus. I'm very encouraged right now. We have several individuals who are interested in, have expressed desire to be baptized, and I am hoping that very soon we will uh, have an evening baptism service. It's going to be a wonderful testimony. But this, this is to be the church's mission. We, we have a, a bent towards not inward, but going out, seeing the gospel go out. We want to make disciples in all that we do, and we reflect the authority of God in Christ in baptizing. But here, the trajectory, notice Jesus says, of all the nations, all the nations. And again, this is not brand new with the New Testament. Sometimes evangelicals have a wrong view of the Bible and think that, well, the the mission of the church really begins in Matthew 28, and this emphasis of going to all nations starts in the New Testament. No, 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 no. Don't turn there, but Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, all the way back in Genesis, when God promised to Abraham to bless him, and that through his descendant, God would bless not only the nation, the physical descendants from Abraham, but God promised in Genesis 22, verse 18 to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. God's intent for the good news of the one who would come, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a descendant of David, the ultimate Jesus, the whole point from the beginning was not merely Israel and Judah, but through Israel and Judah to all nations. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 67. Here we are way back in the Old Testament. And here's a missionary psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 67, just seven verses. I want to read it. Here's a prayer of Israel of old, but it's a prayer for God's people in every generation. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. That's not just the people in Israel. The, The emphasis there is let people from every ethnicity, every race, every nation praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on earth. It continues on. Let the peoples praise you. And so this is the plan of God, is that men and women redeemed from every tribe, every nation would praise God. And that's exactly what we find at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5, when they sing a new song about Jesus and say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from 
every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the plan of God from the beginning. It's the purchase of Christ at the cross. And upon his resurrection, it's his marching orders for his church. And so while we have a zip code and while we are so glad to be here in Chichester, while we live here and while most of us are not going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, some of us might, we are as a church, as we recognize and work out the discipleship of Christ here, the authority of Christ as we submit to it, we are always to have a heart and a mind that this good news and the worship of our king not stay here, but that it go out, that it go out, that it go out. We're always looking beyond our own concerns and burdened that because God must be worshipped and Christ must be honored, that somebody's got to go and we got to support the going of people who will help others know Jesus and worship him. Fourthly, Trinitarian devotion. Trinitarian devotion. Jesus says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Much of my Christian life, I'm not sure I really understood what that meant. It it sounds good. I mean, you got to have something kind of religious to say at a baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I do say that every time I baptize someone, because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. But I don't know that many of us have stopped and thought, what does that mean? To baptize in the name? How do you you baptize in a name? I thought it was water. I mean, where do you get a name that you can kind of dunk somebody in? How does that work? And And then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Here's what it means. The God of the Bible, Jesus, is telling us, is a triune God. He is one God, and he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God is the God of the Bible. This is God, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. Jesus is one with the Father, distinct in terms of his person, but one in essence. Mystery, yes. Amazing. But this is the distinctive reality of Christianity, that we preach and teach the God of the Bible who reveals himself to be one God, three persons, coexisting throughout eternity. In other words, he wasn't the Father and then he turned into Jesus, and then he turned into the Spirit, and then goes back into Jesus. No, no, no. A thousand times no. He's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is our God. In other words, if we're not worshiping this Trinitarian God, we're not Christians. We've gone off the track. Our worship is not only of the Son. We do focus on Jesus. We do recognize the Son, but our worship is not only of the Son, we worship the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's for this reason, I don't know if some of you have picked up on this, almost always, almost always in our singing on Sundays, we don't start with a song specifically directed to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. 
but I intentionally don't do that. Why? We, we do eventually, we eventually in our singing, I can't think of a Sunday where we haven't had a song that references Jesus at some point in the service. We are Christ-centered. We are Christ-focused. We are focused on Jesus because the Father wants us to be. But our God is not merely Jesus. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our worship, then, needs to be Trinitarian. We come to the Father. We believe that the Father is loving. It's the Father who sent the Son. So many of us tend to think Jesus is the nice one of the Trinity, but the Father, you know, he's kind of up there on the chair and say, well, so go see if you can do something with these people. And, you know, if you do, I'll be around for them, I guess. But Jesus, you deal with them. Is that how you think of the Father? He loves you. It's the Father who originated your salvation. It's the Father who loved you so much that he gave his Son. It's the Father, yes, who was pouring out the righteous judgment of God upon the Son at the cross. But the Father was doing that in love for his people. And what about the Spirit? Some of you don't know what to do with the Spirit. Some of you, especially, you're wary of Pentecostalism, and you should be. Abuses of thinking about the Holy Spirit. But some of us who come from maybe more fundamental or, or reformed, you know, we're not so sure about the Spirit. You know, that's, I don't know. <laughs> the Spirit, apart from your justification, the Spirit is the greatest gift you will ever receive in all of eternity. It's a strong phrase, I just statement I just made. But it is by the indwelling Spirit that you are brought near to Christ, and it is by the indwelling Spirit of God and Christ that you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And even in the future, when you are resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth, the greatest gift will not be the new heavens and the new earth, as wonderful as that will be in your resurrection body, is that you will have unhindered fellowship with the Father and the Son because only the Spirit will continue to indwell you and you'll be done with indwelling sin. Oh, I can't wait. Can you? (laughs) But he's the greatest gift. And he's for you. He's not against you. He's your advocate. He's your helper. Oh, yeah, he'll... If you're erring, going apart from Christ, if Christ purchased you with his blood, I've got news for you. He's not going to just let you go, which means he might rebuke you. He might humble you. He might really give you a hard time. But it's because he loves you. And his goal and his desire is to constantly direct you to Jesus and to the Father. Our worship, our fellowship is Trinitarian. We worship a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that should be reflected in all that we do. And just in the way we sing is just a small way. When we come on Sundays, we are coming to worship Jesus, but we are coming equally to worship the Father. And as we sang this morning, we come to worship the Holy Spirit. Someone years ago, uh, another church asked me, should we really worship the Spirit? <laughs> yes. He's God. We worship the Father, Son, and Spirit in the emphasis and the order that the Scriptures teach. And so, no, we do not typically recognize, I mean, we do not emphasize worship of the Spirit per se. He desires our attention to be fixed on the Son to the glory of the Father. But we worship a triune God. 
Am I devoted to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we might ask ourselves this morning. Is this my God? Do you ever pray to the Father or only Jesus? Do you ever acknowledge the presence of the Spirit in your life? For some of you, that might be really new. You might just want to try by starting by saying, Hello, Spirit. (laughs) Um, I'd like to introduce myself. I know you know me, but um, since you're here, I should probably acknowledge you. Fifthly, we need to move quickly. Teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Now, you know what? We'll cover that next week. There's, there's, There's a lot more there than... There's no way I'm going to wrap that up. So there we go. That's our sermon for next week. I wasn't sure. The authority of Christ, the worship of Christ, the authority of Christ. We are to be going, making disciples, and Trinitarian devotion. Does our confession, praying, living have a Trinitarian shape to it? Such rich words. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son. Spirit, we thank you for giving us your word and showing us Jesus. Help us to respond to the words and the command of our Lord. And help us to start even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.